warm welcome to everyone joining us. It's a pleasure to bring you this webinar to you today, which is about local road access for high productivity freight vehicles. My name is Eliz and I'm the moderator and can assist you if you are experiencing any technical issues. Please use the chat box in your webinar sidebar if you need to contact me. This session is proudly brought to you by Osroads. Osroads supports its member organisations, those listed on this slide, to deliver an improved road transport network. Our members are collectively responsible for managing 900,000 kilometres of roads, valued at more than $200 billion. At Osroads, we use a program management approach where each program focuses on an operational area of the road system. This Osroads project falls under the network program. So in terms of housekeeping, our speaker's presentation will go for approximately 35 minutes. After that, we'll have a Q&A session for 15 minutes, answering your questions. Just to note, we are recording today's session and we'll email you when it's available on our website. The slides to this webinar is also available to download in the handout section. We'll upload the slides on our website along with the video. So to submit your questions for the Q&A, simply type your questions into the questions box that you could see into the sidebar at any stage of the presentation. When submitting your question, please indicate the slide number your question relates to. So the report this webinar relates to is available to download in the handout section in your sidebar on the website shown on this slide. This webinar will outline the contemporary barriers to local road access for high productivity freight vehicles and some of the options available for local road managers when considering road access. And now I'd like to introduce our presenter for this session. His name is Rob De Cristoforo, and he is the Managing Director of Advantia Transport Consulting. He has 20 years experience performing engineering evaluations of high productivity freight vehicles and working with the transport industry and road managers to facilitate evidence-based access to the road network. Hi, Rob, we're glad you're able to join us today. Welcome. Thank you, Elise, and good afternoon, everybody. So here is the agenda, and I'll now pass on the controller over to Rob. Okay, thanks, Elise. The agenda for today more or less follows the structure of the report, which, uh, as Elise mentioned, you can download from the, the sidebar I'll move fairly quickly through the introduction and consultation sections to allow more time to focus on the major barriers to local road access, some of the case studies featured in the report, and of course, the report's key recommendations. Just before I jump in, I'll introduce the people involved in this project. The Ostroads project manager was Peter Fraunfelder of Transport for Victoria. Peter appointed me as the project consultant to deliver the project on behalf of Ostroads. Then, as usual for most Ostroads projects, we had a project reference group, which I'll cover in a moment, and numerous stakeholders, mainly local government associations, state road authorities, the transport industry, and a few others. I'll talk about those stakeholders a bit later on today. Then towards the end of the project, we had involvement from the Ostroads Freight Task Force and the Ostroads Board in endorsing the report for publication. This is the makeup of the project reference group. It covers all of Australia and New Zealand, and it includes observers from the National Transport Commission and the National Heavy Vehicle Regulator. I note ALGA in particular. Kim Foster from the Australian Local Government Association took a prominent role in scoping and steering this project. Okay, so let's get started. The task here, in a nutshell, was to identify the barriers to high productivity freight vehicle access specific to local road managers. It was also to study examples of those barriers being overcome and to recommend actions to improve local road access in the future. Those of you familiar with HPFEs and the PBS scheme will have heard the phrase of the last mile or the first and last mile. This is a reference to the fact that many of the journeys made by these vehicles require a small amount of local road access at either end, which in many cases can be the Achilles heel of an entire journey. All road managers 
share similar challenges in facilitating HPFE access, but local road managers in particular do face specific additional challenges due to the mixed use of their roads and limitations in their resources to assess access requests. How many of you know that when the PBS scheme was approved by ministers in 2007, the unanimous position was that effectively level one access meant general access. That's obviously not how it's turned out in the end. As you can see from this map of the PBS level one road network, Queensland certainly has adopted the original intent with all roads being classified as PBS level one. New South Wales has done so to an extent in some municipalities, while Victoria has maintained a road by road classification process. Other jurisdictions have tended to classify main roads only with small numbers of local roads classified in some places. Just to illustrate my point about Victoria, you can see here that some municipalities have classified every road individually, while others haven't classified any roads and it's just the state managed arterial roads that are classified in those municipalities. This alone is a barrier to road access. Because some roads aren't pre-classified, there's work to be done every time a HPFE seeks access to one of these areas. And just to demonstrate that there's not always a logical reason why roads aren't pre-classified for PBS access, take a look at the city of Mildura, where on the left, Every single cul-de-sac is approved for HML 26 metre B-doubles, but on the right, not a single local road is approved for PBS level one, let alone PBS level 2A, which would be the nearest equivalent. This kind of thing can be found all over the country. And to my mind, it's indicative of something else going on, which this project aimed to investigate and fix. Just a short discussion of the consultation process now. I mentioned earlier that I consulted with numerous stakeholder types. Well, these are the individual organisations all listed for you. If you refer to section three of the report, you'll be able to see the names of the individual staffers who I met with from each organisation. I met with 44 individuals in total. Local government consultation was focused on the associations rather than individual councils, just for efficiency really. But I note that in Victoria, the Municipal Association of Victoria invited a few councils with HPFE experience to join in on a consultation meeting. With practically all of the consulted stakeholders, I had lengthy face-to-face -face meetings of more than an hour. So the depth and quality of discussions was really good much better than you can expect from surveys or written submissions. There was also an online survey completed as part of the consultation, more to supplement the in-depth targeted consultations and to reach a wider audience. The dissemination process was fairly solid. I went to ALGA, the ATA and HBIA to have it distributed to their corporate members and they in turn sent it on to their grassroots members. In other words, it, it got to the local council level and the transport company level. I know this because I got responses from all levels and in various states and territories. Unfortunately, however, despite that dissemination process, the response rate was quite poor and no significant findings could be made from the online survey. There were only 11 valid responses and they didn't provide a lot of detail. Section four of the report summarizes the responses. So if you are interested, you can take a look there. At this point, I'll just remind you that if you have any questions as we go along, feel free to type them into the GoToWebinar sidebar, noting the relevant slide number uh, and they'll be considered in the Q&A session at the end. All right, let's move on to barriers. The report identified 33 different barriers and each one is discussed individually in its very own 
section of the report, I've been able to categorise them into these main areas. Given the time available today, I'm only really able to focus on a few of these. I'll be focusing today on misunderstandings around PBS and HPFVs, NHVR and HVNL limitations, and limited resources. It'd be great to have the time to discuss the whole report, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to ask you to look at the report later if you want to learn about those other areas, or alternatively, if you have already read the report, I'd be happy to take questions on anything not covered today during the question time. Okay, so here are some common misunderstandings around PBS and HPFEs that I've picked up on, not only during consultation for this project, but over many years of seeking road access for HPFEs. The first of these is, is that people are just not wired to understand that if individual trucks can carry more freight, there will be fewer truck trips needed. It seems obvious when you hear me say it now, but I guarantee if you go out there and suggest to some people that you'd like to see larger trucks on the roads, they'll probably say, haven't we got enough trucks on the road already? I'm not suggesting that local road managers haven't got a clue, but I do see local road managers resisting HPFE access because, for example, Residents have a dislike for heavy vehicles in general. Really what we're offering here is a way to reduce the number of trucks. Another one is that there appears to be an automatic conclusion drawn that as soon as you allow access to a PBS vehicle, there's an associated increase in risk, either to safety, infrastructure or amenity. With that mindset, you're going to have road managers wanting that risk to be contained, monitored, compensated for, or avoided altogether. And then you end up penalising what is a safer vehicle that might have significant economic benefits for the local community. And let's talk about swept path. People who don't understand the PBS scheme don't know that PBS combinations are required to have a swept path that's no worse than existing prescriptive vehicles like semi-trailers and B-doubles. In many cases, in fact, a longer combination like a 30 meter A-double can have less swept path than a shorter 26 meter B-double. Yet so many times I hear about road managers raising concerns about swept path and asking transport companies to get swept path assessments done to prove that a combination that meets level two standards can get around a corner that's designed for 26 meter B-doubles. Of course it will. That's the whole point of the scheme. Following on from that point, the four PBS levels correlate with the four main levels of access that always existed before PBS. That is general access, restricted access for 26 meter B-doubles and road train access for 36.5 and 53.5 metre road trains. If a road is currently suitable for a particular type of prescriptive vehicle, then it should be automatically possible to classify that road for the corresponding class of PBS vehicle. This is not happening. In some cases, I acknowledge it's because the road probably isn't actually meeting the standard for the vehicles currently using it but I doubt whether that's the case most of the time. Somewhat related to this point is that many road managers would believe that a level 2B combination needs greater road width than a level 2A combination, even though the level 2B standards are the same as the level 2A standards. The only additional things that really matter when considering level 2B access are things like overtaking provision, signal timing, stacking distance, storage lane lengths and rest area or enforcement area parking base sizes, not lane widths. Some road managers have concerns about PBS vehicles damaging the pavement. Considering that they operate with the same maximum axle group loads as every other truck on the road, I don't see how this could be the case even looking at it from 
an equivalent standard axles perspective on a per tonne of payload basis, PBS vehicles stack up for pavement wear. The list goes on, but you can start to see that all of these misunderstandings stem from a lack of exposure to PBS and HPFEs and the messages around how these vehicles actually improve safety, improve wear and tear on the road and reduce the number of trucks needed to move our freight. A knowledge sharing campaign, therefore, is one of my strongest recommendations, as you'll see later. The next category of barriers that we'll cover today is NHVR, HVNL limitations. Starting with in-principle access support. For those unfamiliar with it, in-principle access support is the process where a road manager's support for HPFV access is sought by the operator very early on. Road managers advise of their support in writing on the condition that the operator then goes ahead and obtains PBS design approval and PBS vehicle approval, and of course applies for a permit. These later steps require an investment of some hundreds of thousands of dollars in most cases, which is why the operators would prefer to have access determined at the beginning rather than at the end during that permit application process. Believe it or not, however, the heavy vehicle national law does not recognise this in principle process. The only way to get access approved under the law is to apply for a permit, which requires the vehicle to be built first. Under the in principle process, which has no legal status, a road manager isn't legally bound to respond to a request for support. If they do respond, they aren't legally bound by any time frame. There's no appeals process in the event of an adverse outcome. And if they do support access in writing, they aren't legally bound to honour it once the vehicle's built. So this isn't so much a barrier to road managers, but rather a barrier to operators wishing to gain access certainty. Even getting that in principle piece of paper doesn't give enough certainty at the moment. On to that next point, and this relates to permits where there is a statutory time frame, there's actually no penalty for a road manager not meeting that time frame. So really there's no point in even having a time frame in the law. This again is a barrier faced by operators rather than road managers. The third item here is an interesting one. It relates to section 156 of the law. There are three grounds on which a road manager can refuse access. In simple terms, infrastructure, capacity, community, amenity and public safety. Road managers must provide reasons along these lines, but the way the law is drafted, it's possible for a road manager to refer to a strategic plan, which doesn't need to be public, as a reason to refuse access. Now this comes across to applicants as lacking transparency. I'd like to think that if a strategic plan is being used as a reason to refuse access, then this plan should be publicly available. There could be some valuable insights in there that could really help the industry to understand the limitations on the network and to manage expectations around future access applications uh, until such time as things have improved on the network. I'll go into a bit more detail on this later on, so let's move on for now. There's no independent review body in the appeals process for a permit refusal. The organisation that refused the permit, for example, a state road authority or a local council, is required to review the decision and report back. This, I believe, is a flawed system that will never result in fully transparent and fair outcomes. The last one here is not so much a legal thing, but rather something that the NHVR should work on improving, and that's the journey planner. Anyone who's used the journey planner enough times would have to agree that it needs improvement. I think the NHVR would acknowledge that. One of the biggest problems with it is that it doesn't direct heavy vehicles the way that heavy vehicles should travel between two particular points. It seems to go the way that a car would be best advised to go, and it disregards, for example, truck bypasses and even the very networks on which the trucks in question should go. For example, a level two vehicle will be directed onto level one roads or even unclassified roads 
if that happens to be a faster route. So I've made recommendations in the report on this and I'll touch on this again later. As far as barriers go, I want to finish up on resources and by resources, I mean various sorts of resources like guidelines, online tools, and of course, human resources. It's been more than a decade since the PBS network classification guidelines were released as part of the PBS scheme. These guidelines have been criticised by local road managers for their apparent focus on through traffic and in attention to some of the specific concerns of local road managers around site access. For example, how does one deal with HPFE access where you might have vehicles unable to enter a site without crossing onto the opposite side of the road? This sort of thing happens all the time with conventional B-doubles and appears to be accepted, but what is the approach that a road manager should take for a PBS combination? Who is liable in the event of a mishap? Also, the guidelines are missing lots of elements that have since been incorporated into jurisdiction-specific guidelines that seem to be more advanced. For example, Queensland has continued to develop new guidelines that build on the original PBS guidelines and cover a greater number of considerations. Many of you will have heard of RAVRAT or the Restricted Access Vehicle Route Assessment Tool. This online tool codifies the PBS network classification guidelines into a step-by-step -step process where a road manager with access to the necessary details of their network can enter information into the tool and automatically extract a PBS route classification for each part of the journey. The tool goes a long way to helping road managers classify roads, but it's been labelled as limited in its usefulness because at the end of the day, you need the information to hand to be able to plug into it. And it doesn't really adjudicate on things like bridge loading and swept path, which are areas where local road managers need the most assistance. Finally, human resources. We know that local road managers are quite stretched. In many cases, a geographically large municipality might only have one person responsible for all road access decision-making. That person will often have numerous other responsibilities that take up most of their time. So they might only have one or two days a week to look at road access requests. What happens when this person is sick or on holidays? Uh, if you train other staff to take over at those times, how can you be sure that they'll make the right decisions when they're not very experienced or don't get into that kind of work very often. There's plenty more discussion of these barriers and many other barriers if you go to section five of the report. It's time now to look at some case studies. There were seven in total, but today I'm going to touch on only three of them. Of course, you can see the others in section six. And for any detail I can't get to on the ones I'm covering today, I suggest you refer to the report. <clears throat> the first case study involved access for an overlength B-double between Melbourne and Adelaide. Because of its swept path requirement of over nine metres, it was technically a level three vehicle despite meeting level one and two standards in every other sense. As a level three vehicle, it wasn't possible to gain access all the way to the intended destination in Adelaide. So, it was suggested that a suitable decoupling site be located just out of Adelaide. The photo shows the freeway interchange that was used to access the decoupling site, which was on a local road in Murray Bridge, gazetted for 26 metre B-doubles. You can see that a number of turns are required to access the site when arriving from Melbourne or departing for Melbourne in B-double configuration. Arriving from Adelaide or departing for Adelaide was not a concern because that was only for single trailers. State Road Authority, DPTI in this case, undertook a swept path analysis by checking the worst case level three swept path envelope against the intersections in question. This analysis found that a worst case level three combination couldn't fit through the terms, but the combination in question wasn't a worst case level three combination. It was actually closer to a worst case level two combination than a worst case level three combination. So it was felt that 
the combination would probably be able to fit. So the analysis was repeated using the actual swept path envelope of the combination in question. And this found that the combination could in fact fit through those turns and access could be granted. So the lesson here is it's always best to check swept path using the actual vehicle dimensions rather than a worst case envelope for that class of vehicle. This sort of analysis can easily be performed by the people who undertook the PBS assessment of the combination by overlaying the swept path onto correctly scaled aerial photography. Case study number three was fairly simple really. It, it involved an intersection in Brisbane managed by Brisbane City Council which is currently gazetted for 26 metre B-doubles. A 30 metre A-double was seeking access through this intersection, but the council was unsure about the extra time it would take for the longer combination to cross the first carriageway, particularly because the intersection was on a bend. The company seeking the access had 30 metre A-doubles in operation on other routes, and they suggested to Brisbane City Council, with support from the NHVR, that a demonstration should be organised with one of their existing vehicles to prove the vehicle's capability. The company made that offer on the grounds that access would be granted in the event that the demonstration proved successful. And BCC was happy to move forward on that basis. The demonstration was carried out in off-peak conditions to minimise risk and it proved successful. It also provided an opportunity for BCC to witness the vehicle's performance through a nearby roundabout which was, of course, better than a 26 metre B-double. Road managers are often surprised by how well a 30 metre A-double can manoeuvre in comparison with a 26 metre B-double. So the lesson here is that a demonstration has incredible value because it conveys information in such an easily digestible and irrefutable way. Case study number four takes us back to the very early days of PBS. Again, this one involves Brisbane City Council and anyone familiar with it will remember it as the beer truck. The vehicle in question was a quad axle semi-trailer which is pictured there. Uh, it had a 27 tonne quad axle group and a 50.5 tonne gross combination mass. The operator sought access on a specific route between the brewery in Milton, just west of Brisbane CBD to a warehouse 11 kilometres away in the northeast in Hendra. So this involved a cross-town journey on numerous BCC managed roads. <coughs> Excuse me. The problem here was not so much finding a suitable route but rather providing BCC with sufficient certainty that the vehicle would actually follow that route and not stray onto other roads that might not be up to the task. The solution was for the operator to enrol in the intelligent access program, which provides evidentiary level position tracking, record keeping and reporting to road managers of any non-compliance with the conditions of access. The lesson here was that concerns about route non-compliance are no longer acceptable as a reason for refusing access. We have the tools available now to monitor and report on non-compliance. The National Telematics Framework has other tools available. It's not just about position tracking. Other tools include speed compliance, which can include localised speed limits over sensitive bridges, and also mass compliance, both for individual axle groups and gross combination mass. So that's just some of the case studies for you. Remember, there's a lot more detail in the report and there are four more case studies in there as well. So feel free to take a look at those later. Let's get on to the report's recommendations now. As with all Osteroads reports, the recommendations aren't necessarily forced upon the road managers to be implemented. We recognise that some road managers are more advanced than others in adapting to the PBS scheme and may therefore be better equipped to deal with the various issues. Each road manager should consider its own situation before adopting the recommendations. The report makes 10 recommendations, which I've categorised as shown here. To my mind, knowledge of the PBS scheme is the most important of all the recommendations. And I'll go into detail on that in a moment. Uh, 
I think having road managers who are well educated about HPFVs and the PBS scheme would resolve many of the identified barriers and could even make some of the other recommendations obsolete. You'll notice there are four recommendations around legislation. I think there's a bit of work to be done around tightening the rules to make access more certain and to put more onus on road managers to provide access where access is due. Anyway, I'll go through these one by one, starting with knowledge. So I'm recommending a knowledge sharing campaign and various types of additional support to road managers that is properly funded, nationally coordinated, multi-channel, ongoing, and of a high quality. I'm saying this because it's the opposite of how it's been done to date and what's been done to date doesn't appear to have hit the mark. I'm recommending an interactive website hosted by the NHVR and designed by online education professionals on the advice of trusted PBS professionals. I'm recommending a series of short two to three minute online video clips professionally produced on the advice of trusted PBS professionals. I'm recommending a vehicle demonstration roadshow, similar to the ones that have been held already, but targeting a wider audience. I'm recommending PBS training workshops where people can attend a lecture style presentation and have Q&A with the presenter. I'm recommending annual direct mail to all local councils and state road authorities, both electronic and print, with an update on PBS and advice on each of the above channels. And I'm recommending road manager training in the new NHVR portal road manager module. I'm recommending all of these things because of what I learned during consultation, in addition to my background knowledge of the level of understanding of PBS out there amongst road managers. There are two recommendations around funding, both related to infrastructure capacity. <clears throat> One funding stream in recommendation two is to allow road managers to outsource the task of firstly, road asset audit, which is to understand what's actually out there in the network. And secondly, road asset assessment, which is to test the infrastructure against geometric and structural standards required for HPFVs. I'm suggesting that this funding will be subject to the road manager doing some preliminary work themselves and then applying for the required funding from a limited pool. The other stream in recommendation three is to pay for any infrastructure upgrades or replacements that arise from the assessments. These upgrades or replacements should favour the introduction of, for example, 50.5 tonne PBS quadaxle semi-trailers and 85 tonne PBS A-doubles on priority freight routes. I note that there is currently a federal government bridges renewal program, which funds up to 50% of the cost of bridge upgrades and replacements. Now, I don't know enough about this program to understand if it's anywhere near sufficiently funded to get us where we need to be in terms of a PBS network, but this would be the obvious place to start. Here are the four recommendations related to legislation. I'll just go through these one by one and there's a fair bit in it. <clears throat> in recommendation four, I'm saying we need to improve the in-principle access decision-making process. That's the process where access certainty is needed before an operator invests in approving and constructing a PBS combination, which could be many hundreds of thousands of dollars. This requires legislative amendments to introduce binding decisions within a statutory timeframe when requests are made for access prior to a PBS vehicle approval being issued. There are a couple of options discussed in the report and the report does refer to some previous Osteroads recommendations in this space. Recommendation five was a tricky one. It's a sensitive subject when you start talking to road managers about potentially penalising them for not making their decisions on time. Without a clear preferred direction from the project group, the way that certain members of the group preferred to leave this one was that more consideration needs to be given to how this issue might be resolved. This is something that was just a little bit too much to handle within the scope of the project. There's some good discussion of the various options considered if you go to the report. Recommendation six 
had three distinct parts, each calling for changes to section 156 bracket 3 of the HBNL. The first was redrafting it to require that any reasons given for access refusal are compelling. We've certainly seen some examples where that wasn't quite the case. The second was enforcing compliance with 156 bracket 3 part B so that where the requested access is refused for compelling reasons, access is nevertheless approved, if possible, with acceptable risk mitigating conditions. And this is just not happening enough at present. For example, if the combination is too heavy to cross a certain bridge, I believe it should be approved at an acceptable mass. The third was clarifying section 4.4 of the NHVR's approved guidelines for granting access, which are referenced in section 156 bracket 3 as simply approved guidelines. The guidelines make reference to a strategic plan being acceptable as a reason to refuse access without putting any structure around how that should be done. So you can have some fairly non-transparent outcomes there, like a road manager saying, we refuse access because this is inconsistent with our strategic plan. Finally, in recommendation seven, an independent appeals process is needed to make sure all of the above is working and we are in fact being delivered due process. Now, I didn't have time to go into detail on these today, so please take a look at the report if you want some more information on these particular recommendations. The final set of recommendations relate to the tools available to road managers. Firstly, I think the NHVR journey planner needs a lot of work to bring it up to scratch. There was a new beta version getting around for a while, but that's disappeared and we're left with what I believe is a substandard tool. I discussed the shortcomings of that tool already. Recommendation nine looks at the longstanding issue of cost recovery. There are some options listed in the report for how road managers could recover any marginal costs of allowing heavier combinations on their roads. Much of this is probably resting on the national telematics framework, which is at a point now where it could be used for this kind of application. The federal government, I understand, is currently working with states and territories to investigate reforms to the way that heavy vehicles are charged to use roads. They intend to invite industry to take part in a national heavy vehicle charging pilot that will test the replacement of existing registration fees and fuel-based road user charges with a national direct user charge. The final recommendation, number 10, is to update route assessment tools. This refers specifically to the PBS network classification guidelines, which is starting to fall behind some of the state-based network classification guidelines. The PBS guidelines need to be brought up to that level and the RAVRAT software that many road managers are familiar with needs to be updated to reflect any changes in those guidelines. I'd like you all to note that the Austroads Freight Task Force, which includes representation from the NTC and NHVR, has a process for monitoring the implementation of Austroads report recommendations. So that will certainly be the case for this report as well. So with that, I'll draw my formal presentation to an end and open the floor to some Q&A. Thanks all for joining in. Yeah, thank you, Rob, for covering all that information. So I've been collating the questions throughout and we have received some great questions from the audience. Thank you to those who have sent these through. So the first question we received is from Derek and he's asked, for the same freight task, is it true that number of trips will be reduced by using HPVs? but the ESAs of a HPV will increase exponentially, power four or seven for different pavements compared to the number of trips, which is reduced only linearly. Some of my calculations show that it is possible that the total ESA for HPVs can be higher than if the same task was carried by a standard vehicle, even though the number of trips is reduced because the ESA has increased exponentially. So can you provide any comments on this question? Yeah, it is a good question. Um, I think, well, the analysis that I've done in the past, and I, I think there is one in the report actually, um, it usually is the other way around. It is, it, it does show a benefit for 
um, for the HPFV. There's, there's an example comparing, I think, a single semi-trailer with uh, an A-double. Um, and there's also, I think, some examples in that report from, it was in one of the case studies uh, where Main Roads WA had put some words around that as well. And it does, it does turn out in favour of the HPFVs. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I'm not saying there might not be some situations where you might prove otherwise, but certainly there is a there is a huge benefit because each truck is carrying a lot of dead weight uh, with its engine and gearbox and axles that aren't really carrying any freight. They're just carrying, uh, you know, the, the front part of the truck, the driver and everything. So if you can have uh, trucks sort of joining together into into one, that dead weight is disappearing. So you're getting more payload on the vehicle um, per per ton of gross mass. So it's it actually does turn out better in, in favour of the, the HPFE. And I'll be happy to to talk to Derek later about this if he wants to give me some specific examples and um, or anyone else for that matter. Uh, I'm pretty sure it, it does work out in favour of the of the HPFE every time. Yeah. Thanks Rob. So we had like a similar question. So will a PBS have a greater lesser shear stress at intersection than a non-PBS for the same freight task? Uh, you're talking about pavement uh, yeah. deformation. So from, um, yeah, from that question. Well, the, the, the standards do limit shear stresses um, to levels that are acceptable. So, for example, um, when you've got, if you've got a quad axle group, for example, which is not commonly used on, on conventional vehicles, the quad axle has to have um, one of the extreme axles in that group needs to be steerable. And that means that when you're going around a corner, that axle steers and doesn't actually scrub the road like it would if it wasn't steerable. Um, there's also limits on on uh, how much load can be pulled by uh, per drive axle on the vehicle. So the, the traction forces can't exceed certain levels there. So you've got, there, there are, there are rules in place in the scheme that, that are designed to limit what we call pavement horizontal loads. Um, and for that reason, I, I don't think there's any systemic problem with, with the scheme that, that would increase the amount of shear stresses in pavements. Thanks for that, Rob. So another question we received from Brett, so he has a comment and question. So he says, with respect to HPV being safer, I agree there may be involved in fewer crashes. However, I'm concerned regarding the severity of outcome of a crash given the much higher mass, e.g. safety barriers and bridge barriers are not designed to contain much high mass vehicles and roadside clear zones are not designed for such high mass vehicles given limited clear width where these higher mass vehicles could clearly travel well past this clear zone and into significant hazards. Additionally, what is the stopping distance of the higher mass vehicles compared to traditional HVs? All right, so there's a bit there. Um, <clears throat> so if it's true that a, that a HPFE could have a worse outcome in the case of, a, of an incident, I think that's only going to be a marginal change and that that powers into insignificance when you look at the figures that have come out of other reports showing you know 60 percent reduction of risk of the crash occurring so let's say there's a you know even a 10 or 20 percent increase in the energy involved in a crash for example that but you're having 60 percent fewer crashes that's got to be a positive outcome uh, that's just on that first point uh, the second point regarding braking these trucks have the best braking capability in the fleet. They are required under the standards to have the latest braking technologies, whereas other vehicles don't have to. So in a lot of cases, they do have electronic stability control on trailers. And I would much rather be uh, driving with my family around one of those trucks than, than a conventional truck, I can assure you. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, thanks for that, Rob. Thanks for clarifying. So, will Osteros extend its investigations into a mode switching of freight from rail to road HPVs and consequent economics on Australian rail and road socioeconomic cost benefits, be negative impacts on other road users of HPV and B double convoys? Well, that's a question I can't answer. Um, that's a question for Ostroads. Uh, the appropriate task force uh, manager could probably speak to that one. But um, you know, everything I've heard about road rail competition in the past has been that only a small fraction of freight is contestable between the two modes. So we're not going to see landslide shift from one to the other. Um, it's just not possible because it's just it doesn't make sense to transport certain freight by the other mode. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry I can't answer that question directly whether any work is going to be done in that area, but I, I don't I don't see it as, a, as an issue anyway, personally. Okay, thanks for clarifying, Rob. Another question relates to slide 37. So, why do you see the privatisation of auditing and assessment, recommendation two, as a better option to road authorities doing the task? Well, when you say road authorities, you're talking about local councils, uh, because I think that what I heard was that they just, they just, they do not have the resources. Um, if they could put on the resources of their own, um, they would need quite a bit of it to, to be able to, to manage that task. And I think it's, it makes more sense to have, rather than having a, you know, a, a road asset auditor and assessor in every single council if we have some sort of um, consolidation of that effort and there will just be a, a smaller number of of uh, providers doing that service and then it just gets outsourced. It just seems to be the sensible way to do it these days, I would think, especially if it's something that's only going to be for a short-term period where you're, you're performing that, that audit and assessment and then it's done and it just makes more sense to to get that done by an appropriate provider and then and then it's finished and rather than hiring people and training them and um, I think it's a more efficient way to do it. Okay, thanks for clarifying Rob. Another question is, is Osteroids working to change the ADRs to mandate silent engine brakes on these larger HPV prime movers so that nighttime noise impacts on sensitive communities are minimised? There, there is, um, or there was a, an Ostroads project completed, uh, I think last year, looking at actually adding uh, another standard for the vehicles to meet, which was around around uh, auxiliary brakes, so braking on long steep descents, and that was that work was done because you know there was a there was a view in the community that maybe these larger, heavier vehicles may require, um, at least it, may, it must be proven that they do have um, acceptable braking power other than the foot brakes. So um, typically that would be engine brakes, exhaust brakes that, that, that can be noisy, but, but also other driveline-based retarders that are either electric or, or hydraulic retarders that act in the driveline. That report uh, set some some performance requirements around the ability of vehicles to be able to maintain speed on these long descents and I I don't know where that is at at the moment in terms of implementation but uh, that would be one of the items on on the uh, the freight task forces uh, agenda I would think uh, since the report was done just in the past 12 months so I don't know mm -hmm. what that does about the noise around brakes. I, I think it was more about the performance of the system. So uh, it could be that that um, the requirements for additional, if there is an, a, a need for greater auxiliary braking power than what can be provided by an engine brake or an exhaust brake, then it may be that in some cases these, these quieter driveline solutions will be needed as well. Uh, but that's something that um, 
is under consideration by uh, Austroads at the moment. Great, thank you, Rob. So another question is, will HPV lead to competition with rail and therefore more trucks on roads? Yeah, so I, I kind of touched on this a bit earlier. Um, I think, I think, um, look, I, I, there's probably are, there probably are some cases where it just, it's more attractive to put freight on a truck when it used to be on a train. Uh, and that just comes down to the speed of the turnaround of, of that, that operation, the, the, um, the responsiveness of that service. Um, time sensitivity uh, is, a, is a big one there. So when you've got, for example, bulk coal coming out of a mine and it's going, it's just going long distances and it, it's not like uh, a time sensitive commodity. It's just the same coal that gets loaded on at one end is coming out the other end a few days later it's not it's not um you know it doesn't matter when it's how long it takes to get there as long as it keeps coming at, at the right rate so it's it's not um not as attractive to to throw things on the road when the train's doing the job but if there's any uh, service levels that are improved as a result of going on road that's where there's a, a chance that you could get some shift but i'm not aware of any of anyone, or well, no one's come to me in in my memory and said we are currently transporting a product by rail and we want to put it on the road because it's cheaper or whatever. That that just hasn't happened in my experience. Hmm. Thanks for clarifying, Rob. So, a question we received from Michelle is she's commented. So, I'm not sure that it's true that only a small amount of freight is contestable between road and rail. Certainly agricultural freight like grains and cotton are suited to both. Therefore, competition between the two modes is significant. Do you have any comments around this? I'm just basing my comments on the Productivity Commission report, which is probably about 10 years old now, but um, that quoted a figure of, I think it was 10 to 15% uh, of all freight being contestable. and unless something's changed since then, I, that's what I was basing that on, that comment earlier. Okay, thank you, Rob. Another question is, will Austroads investigate the negative impacts on other road users of HPV convoys? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what's meant by that, um, because certainly there, the, there are benefits to HPVs. I don't see them as having, um, you know, negative, negative effects on people. They, they improve safety. They, they reduce the numbers of vehicles on the road. I guess it's possible. I, I think maybe what the question is getting at is if you do have a couple of these trucks traveling very close together, it might be, you know, uh, uh, there might be some sort of difficulty in changing lanes around them or something like that. If, if that's what they are referring to, um, again, I don't know how that, is going to be worse with HPVs because, you know, where you've got three B doubles now, you'll have two A doubles, for example. So there's just going to be fewer vehicles. The overall uh, length of road used up by these trucks will be less. So normally you'll have the length of the vehicle itself plus a gap and then the length of the next vehicle and then another gap and the length of the next vehicle after that. And whenever you have slightly larger vehicles and fewer of them in total, you have uh, less of those gaps in between and the overall length of that convoy is actually less. So I'm not really sure where that question is coming from. If I've misinterpreted it, I'm happy to go back to it, but I think it's actually a benefit to users of the road if, if there's a higher mix of these vehicles out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, Rob. A question we received from David is, has the NHVR indicated what it intends to do to have the journey route planner upgraded to provide the same or a better degree of access information that is currently provided by state jurisdictions, such as Victoria's HV network maps? They haven't been explicit about that to me. Um, I know that uh, there is work being done though, and I, I'm fairly certain that 
despite my recommendations, you know, something will happen anyway in that space, sure enough. Uh, but I, I don't know what it's going to look like and whether it's going to address all of the things I have brought up. Um, I'd like to think it does. Um, it's the, and it's interesting how the, the you mentioned the state uh, websites have their own mapping tools. And that seems to be the case across the board where that, that is the enforceable, they'll refer to that as the, their enforceable maps. And if you look at the national notices, they always refer to each of the state's maps as the source you know, under the law. That's the source of the definition of, of what roads are approved and so forth. They don't refer to the maps contained on the NHVR website. So um, there's a bit of a, there's always going to be two different sources, if you like, the, the NHVR source and then the, the specific state source uh, somewhere else. And we're always going to see differences in the, the, the features on, on those tools. But I would hope that the NHVR tool does improve because it's still required to use that if you want to be, if you want to start doing interstate trip planning and so forth, you've got to go into that tool to be able to set up those journey plans and so forth. So yeah, I just don't know what exactly it's going to come up with, but that'd be a good question for the NHVR. Mm, okay, thank you, Rob. Another question is, would an update to Austroads design templates and turning path templates help mitigate concerns about the turning paths of PBS vehicles? You know, I think there already is in existence uh, some turning templates that are representative of PBS vehicles. So you've got your, you know, 19 metre semi and your 26 metre B double and some road trains and things and buses and, and service vehicles and, and whatever else. But I've, I was under the impression that some years ago uh, added to that mix was some PBS envelopes and they're not specific to any particular configuration of trailers. It just says this envelope represents a worst case level two vehicle and this one represents a worst case level three. And these things are designed so that the maximum width of that swept path on a 90 degree turn matches the the uh, the PBS limit. So that would be the best thing you could use at, at this stage. Um, but the, the, the easiest way to, to think of it, in my view, is not to even worry about templates. If you know that a vehicle is meeting level two standards, that means the swept path of that vehicle is comparable to a B-double. Uh, likewise, with, uh, with the other levels, they, they relate to existing vehicles. So there shouldn't be any need to, to look at swept paths unless you have some particular concern that the, the particular intersection that you're concerned about isn't even suitable for, for the current vehicles, uh, then that's a different problem altogether. All right. Thanks for that, Rob. And one last question is, would convoys make passing more difficult and travel time significantly longer for other road users, especially emergency vehicles? Yeah, that's, I'll have to take that one on notice. I don't think I can get my head around that one just now. Um, I think there, there are, there are, um, uh, well, part of the network classification guidelines look at overtaking provision around these vehicles. And uh, I think you probably find that um, there are, that those guidelines end up putting limits on how long the vehicles can be on a certain road. So you might have, um, if you've got a, say a two lane highway with not many opportunities for overtaking, then uh, there will be a limit on how long the vehicles could be on that road, or there might be a requirement to introduce some overtaking lanes. That's all in the guidelines. And I think if you were to follow those guidelines, you wouldn't have any unacceptable outcomes in terms of overtaking. Uh, but in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, whether it's going to be better or worse, uh, that's a bit, a bit, a bit too much for me to answer right now, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay.
Thanks for that, Rob. So we will start after wrapping up this session. Due to time, we have answered all the questions, which is excellent. But before we let the audience go, I'd like to update them on the upcoming webinars that we have. We do have another session on geopolymer concrete and its applications, which is on 1st of May. We'll have two presenters in that session outlining the findings of a 4 year project and the details to register are shown on the website. And also, I'd like to let you know of some exciting news that we'd like to announce. So our webinar recordings are now available as podcasts, which is excellent. So you could sub subscribe to our channel titled Ostroads. Simply search for Ostroads in your podcast app on your smart device. Alternatively, you could add our RSS feed shown on the slide. And to our audience, we hope you enjoyed the session today. Uh, feel free to get in contact with us if you have any further questions. But as we close up, we'd like your feedback on how we could improve these webinars as well as any other topics you'd like us to cover. So if you could please fill out a survey which will pop up on your screen shortly. And lastly, thank, thank you again, Rob, for joining us today. No problems, Liz. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you all. Goodbye and have a good day. <laughs>